Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 42, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So welcome back to our series here in October about the supernatural. If you are just joining us for this episode, you should know that we've had three episodes before this one. The first one is sort of setting the stage for what is the supernatural anyway, giving us a basis for this, um, and really rooted in how much the supernatural was a part of what Jesus did on an everyday basis, and what he tried to model for his disciples. And then the following two weeks, the, uh, we explored both the dark and the light side of the supernatural. The dark side meaning, you know, what, what are the dark elements of the supernatural that Jesus said are certainly true, and what are some red flags that we need to pay attention to uh, when we are involved in supernatural kinds of environments or experiences, what are the red flags we need to watch out for? And then last, the last episode was just kind of, kind of a primer on how, how to live more supernaturally, uh, with a bunch of ideas that we gave uh, from our own stories of how to live more supernaturally. So if you've missed any of those previous three, it'd be a great thing to go back and catch up on those. And today we're going to do like an easy-peasy thing. I mean, in this whole supernatural series, we're we're just going to explain the book of Revelation today. Yeah, it's no big no deal. Big, no biggie. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that like a lot of really well known Christian speakers and authors don't really want to do that, or they've sort of avoided it. But we're going to do it. It's it's easy. It'll it, take. In fact, I think this is going to be a five minute episode. Right? Five minute episode. Yeah, because <laughs> all we'll do is just say uh, that the book of Revelation is a book of symbolic fortune-telling, so we'll leave it at that. You bring it, bring your own meaning to it. <laughs> it. It makes me think, though, of, you know that Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? That yes. If the Beatles... Everyone knows that song. Yeah, okay. So if the, if the Beatles were going to pick, like, their favorite book in the Bible, don't you think it would be Revelation? Because it's just full of hallucinatory symbolism. Yeah. It's like an acid trip. Yeah, it would fit right into Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It would. I I would like to say, Rick just mentioned that this is part of a series, particularly if you're just joining us for this one, I would definitely highly recommend uh, listening to the episode on red flags, just because as we're talking about any of this stuff, it's really important, I think, to understand kind of some of the negative aspects of dealing with the supernatural and what the red flags are. um, If you're dealing with those, so yeah, and the reason that the Book of Revelation is here. Uh, toward the end of our series on the supernatural, is it is sort of overtly the most supernatural book in the Bible in the sense that it describes things that are sort of otherworldly that we can't get our minds around. It's it's a it's a crazy journey through these vivid, fantastical images. They they remind me a little bit of some of the same kinds of images that show up in the book of Daniel, for instance, when Daniel is giving prophecies to those in power at the time, um, and then trying to explain to them what the prophecies meant. Or there's some similar kind of crazy images in the book of Ezekiel. But uh, Revelation is sort of back-to-back full of these things, and that's kind of why some people are just obsessed with the book of Revelation, because it's almost like uh, 
people that are fascinated by the Da Vinci Code films or, you know, where there's codes and, and cryptic clues to things and fore, foreshadowings of things. People that are drawn to that are drawn to the book of Revelation because they want to try to figure out what all of these symbols actually mean. And then there's some people who are just repelled by it. Like, I, I, it might as well not even be in the Bible because they're never going to read it because it's so thick with this symbolism that it's hard to really understand. And I think in some ways the book of Revelation is is the most misunderstood book in the Bible because of these two extremes that we approach it with, either that we think it it's full of this cryptic stuff, or we think it's so thick and dense we can't make head or tails of it. So it's a very misunderstood book. But what makes this even more timely is that there's a lot of things going on in the world right now that are making people think all over again, is this the end of the world? I mean, is the apocalypse coming? Isn't Aren't there some things in the Bible that talk about some of the stuff that's happening, like earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and wars and rumors of wars? And, and you know, all the time, these things, when, when things get kind of bad or kind of obviously bad— People start to think about, well, is this it? Is this the end of the time? Is it, is that is, Are all these fires an indicator then that we're headed down the slippery slope to the apocalypse? And so all of this then gets translated as these precursors, these warnings that this stuff is about to happen. The fact of the matter, though, is that these things, these things I just mentioned, the earthquakes and all this kind of stuff, they've been happening for every generation for all of human history. There's, in, there's never been a time when they haven't happened. In fact, I found a Wikipedia page that started all the way from 0 AD to today, to 27. Actually, it actually goes into 2018. There's current end time predictions for 2018. And so it was really fascinating. I'm going to post a link to it on this podcast episode because it's so interesting to see that from the time that Jesus left until now, there has never been a time when someone wasn't predicting that the end of the world was coming like within the next couple of years. There's never been a time from from then all the way to now when someone hasn't had a very educated opinion and who was a high up kind of religious leader who said, this is it, this is it's going to happen on this day, and here's all the reasons why. Why don't you go through some of those sort of markers that we're supposed to be looking for that indicate that uh-oh, we're, we're headed toward it. What, what are some of those? Uh, so it, this is um, another fascinating thing, and I'll post a link to this page too. It just simply lists all, listed all of the kind of end-time signs and also the biblical references to them. So if you're like, what are the end-time signs? Um, here's a list of them. So war on a large scale, mm. yep. famine, great earthquakes, Pestilence or epidemics or terrible diseases. Now, you don't hear about the word pestilence every day anymore. No, but yeah. there was like the Great Plague. That was yeah. a big time that they were like, for sure, this is the I end times. I think that definitely qualifies as a pestilence. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, an increase in crime, uh, running of the earth by mankind, deterioration of people's attitudes as shown by many who are unthankful, disloyal, not open to agree- any agreement, slanders, without self-control, fierce, without love of goodness, betrayers, headstrong, puffed up with pride, um, a breakdown of the family, that's mm. a big one, 
Um, so people who have no natural affection and children who are disobedient to their parents. I oh, can't Im- so disobedience to parents is a sign of the end times. Yeah. I need so to like, remember to tell my kids that. Yep, yeah, just <laughs> that's a great... Stop yeah. being a sign of yeah. the end times. Don't, don't hurry the end times <laughs> by your disobedience, true. kids. Love of God growing cold in most people. Noteworthy displays of religious hypocrisy, mm. an increased understanding of Bib- of Bible prophecies, including those related to the last days. So maybe us doing this podcast, we're ushering in on, the apocalypse. We're ushering in the apocalypse. Sorry, everybody. Global preaching of the good news of the kingdom. That's a positive one. I was mm-hmm. actually like, oh, there's a positive one. Widespread apathy and even ridicule towards the evidence of the approaching end. And then also the simultaneous fulfillment of all of these prophecies, not just a few or even most of them. So here's what I find fascinating with this, because you know some of these things Jesus was sort of pointing to as well. It, it, he's he's kind of telling telling his disciples in advance some of the specific things that are going to be happening before you know the end of the world comes. But I just this is one of those moments where most people take Jesus like super seriously, and I see him in a more sly way. Like, if if you were trying to puncture people's sort of obsession about knowing what's going to happen in the future so that they can maintain control over their circumstances, and if you were trying to puncture that addiction in them, and they wouldn't stop asking you about, well, what's going to happen down the line here, what might you do if you had a good sense of humor, i.e. Jesus had a really great sense of humor? Well, you might just tell them, Look for these things, these specific things that are going to happen before the apocalypse happens, and that's when you'll know to get ready for it coming. But the things that you pick out are things that have happened every year since the dawn of time, and they're happening right now for and what, us. We were just talking about this. What is get ready? Like, is it have enough water, or is it like have a disaster recovery plan? Like, what is it? I, I think that you need to have on your gym shoes, not your dress shoes. So we should stop wearing dress shoes? Well, if you're going to have to run from the lava, (laughs) then you better have something on that you can run in. (laughs) You know, you don't want flip-flops at the apocalypse. I feel like this goes back to what I said about the zombie apocalypse, like I'll be the first one to die. Yeah, I thought you were were going to say, I I thought you were going to say that this goes back to widespread apathy and even ridicule toward the evidence of the approaching end, that we are also on that score, Uh also advancing the apocalypse. But I'm not—I'm honestly not ridiculing any of these signs, but I am saying that I think Jesus was quite sly about saying two things. One is, hey, by the way, you're not going to know when these things happen, um, because it's actually not good for you to know when these things are going to happen, but you're so persistent, let me give you a list of things that are going to happen before it happens, and oh, that list will make sense no matter what time in history you're living, (laughs) So, including today. I often have conversations with my wife, who I've mentioned before, she's Irish-Italian, and that means she has the two most volatile ethnic strains on earth— coursing through her veins, and when we're taking a walk around the neighborhood sometimes, she'll be talking about the latest you know, political thing that's happened or the, the latest disaster that's happening in the news, and she'll, she'll look at me very seriously and say, Rick, this must be—I mean, it, this must be the end. This must be the end coming. And I'll say something like, yeah, except everybody 
in, uh, throughout history has said the same thing. So yeah. there is there is something to set aside in all of this, to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here, is not get too enamored by the whole, let's figure out the future thing, and when is the apocalypse exactly going to come? He's trying to say a little bit, don't, don't get too kind of caught up in that. So what does the book of Revelation really mean? What is it really about then? If if it's if we're not supposed to get caught up in all the end time stuff, then what is it there for? So in our Jesus-centered Bible, every one of the books of the Bible has a Jesus-centered introduction written to it. And the one for the book of Revelation was written by Brian Zond, who is a pastor of a very large church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and he's part of the Simply Jesus Gathering. And um, I asked him to write this intro to the book of Revelation, so I thought I'd read, read you what he wrote, because I think this is interesting to get one kind of picture of what this book is all about. So here's what he says. As a child growing up in church, I didn't always feel engaged by the sermon. On those occasions, I'd pull out the Pew Bible and begin to read, and I always went to the same place, to the end of the Bible, to the mysterious book of Revelation. I was fascinated with its monsters and battles and its angels and demons and its visions of heaven and hell that parade across the pages in the final installment of Christian scripture. Like many others, I assumed I was reading a kind of undeciphered code about the end times. I thought Revelation was a veiled foretelling of the geopolitical events of the late 20th century. But I was mistaken. The book of Revelation was written around the end of the first century and is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. It's a daring proclamation that Jesus Christ is the world's new emperor. Revelation is a wild and creative portrayal of the conflict between the beastly empire of Rome and the peaceable reign of the Lamb of God. What it foretells is the eventual triumph of the kingdom of Christ. It uses the genre of macabre comedy, hideous monsters finally conquered by a little lamb, a slaughtered lamb who lives again. This is how John the Revelator describes the triumph of Jesus over the Roman Empire and all beastly empires to come. Now, we must remember that everything in Revelation is told in the language of symbol. From the seven-eyed lamb and the seven-headed dragon to the burning lake and the bejeweled city, everything is encased in symbol. But these symbols point to glorious and terrible realities. One of our challenges is that we are 2,000 years removed from the origins of these symbols. Today, if we see a cartoon of a donkey and an elephant wearing boxing gloves— we recognize it as a comic commentary on American politics, but it would be likely hard for someone 2,000 years from now to discern this political meaning. So keep in mind that most of the monstrous images in Revelation are symbols for cosmic evil working through the Roman Empire. But it's most important to remember what Revelation is and what it isn't. It's not a coded newspaper foretelling geopolitical events of the 21st century. It is a glorious revelation of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Jesus' lamb-like kingdom brings a saving alternative to the beast-like empires of the world. Revelation doesn't anticipate the end of God's good creation. It anticipates the end of violent empire. John confessed that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, which is why John was exiled to the prison island of Patmos. From that deep faith there gushed a wellspring of creative images that communicate this glorious reality. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's in Revelation 11, verse 15. This is the great revelation of Revelation. So I love that 
Brian Zahn took this kind of slice of Revelation and said, I think this is how it's interpreted. Other popular interpretations of the book of Revelation include sort of the early Protestant Christian uh, leaders pointing to the Pope as the Antichrist, a lot of attachment to the abuses that were happening in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and attaching those that symbolism to the book of Revelation. So many saw it as that. Some saw it as a critique of the Church throughout the ages, like each one of these seven seals and seven scrolls and uh, seven churches represented an, a different age of the Church, a different season of the Church that was being critiqued. So some saw it as that, and then some saw it as kind of a symbolic history lesson told about the future, meaning it's almost told like you're looking back on something that's actually not going to happen until the future, and you're telling what what that looks like. So some see it sort of in that metaphysical way, the coded, cryptic way. So those are other popular ways of seeing the book of Revelation. Brian Zahn's is really focused on, you know, the the symbolism all pertaining to to the Roman Empire at the time. I think what we need to do to, to get kind of rolling into, you know, how, how do we want to unpack this, is to, first of all, plant the book of Revelation clearly in this realm of the supernatural. So from the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it is this Apostle John, in his old age, imprisoned on this island, who's alone in his cell, and into his cell, when he's worshiping, it says he's worshiping in the Spirit, he hears a voice that sounds like a, 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 the crack of lightning uh, or the blast of trumpets in his cell. He hears a voice that just sounds otherworldly, and, and that gets his attention. And so right off the bat, we have a story that is kind of cloaked in the supernatural. John doesn't know if it's an angel or if it's actually Jesus who is there with him, speaking these words to him and giving him these fantastical images Later on in Revelation, it seems to indicate that the one who's visiting him is Jesus himself. And so the true focal point for the book of Revelation is really not so much the cryptic symbolism, but really the focal point, which is Jesus, from the very beginning all the way to the end. It's, it's really the status of our intimate relationship with Jesus that this book is about, including the warnings to the seven churches. So Let's just talk about those for a second, and then uh, I think what what Becky and I will do is the warnings to the seven churches in Revelation take up the first three chapters of the book, and if you have a red-letter Bible like the Jesus-centered Bible is, you'll see in those first three chapters it's almost all red. It's Jesus talking to John and saying, give these messages to these seven churches in the province of Asia from me to them. So we're going to kind of slow down and pay attention to his message to each of these seven churches, and try to, A, understand why was this important for Jesus to communicate, and B, how do we see this being lived out right now in in our lives and in our culture? So these messages to these seven churches all follow a similar structure. So first, Jesus points out what he likes that the people in that church are doing, and then he points out that he has a bone to pick with them about something. It has this kind of same poetic cadence. I, I like that you're doing this, but I really don't like that this is going on. So each one of them has that kind of basic structure, and let's then figure out, okay, we, it makes perfect sense what, what he's lifting up that he likes, 
let's pay attention to the things that he doesn't like and try to understand how that works with us. So I'll start off with the first the first message to the church at Ephesus. Essentially, and this is in Revelation, oh, chapter 2. Yep. So this is um, his message to the church at Ephesus. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. And essentially what he's saying to the church is, uh, you work hard, and you don't tolerate things that aren't true. You love the truth, and you don't tolerate untruth, but you don't really love me or others the way you first did. So he's saying, you're really working hard at it, and you're very conscious of people that uh, are doctrinally inappropriate or inaccurate, and you're quick to point out people that aren't really telling the truth, but something's happened along the way, and it seems as though your love for me has grown cold, and your love for others has grown cold. So let's just stop here for a second and first ask, well, why would Jesus think this is so important to point out? What is it that's so important, and how do we see this in our own environment? Does anything pop into your head there, Becky? Yeah, I I think that sometimes you see this in churches, and sometimes you can see this in people. But I think when we start to value discipline over everything else. So mm. when you see people who are just so, they have to keep control of everything in their life and everything in, in the lives of the people around them, that they often miss out on this other thing that, that we were asked to be, which was playful, playful with others, playful with people. And it's like, almost like I, I went and saw Beth Moore speak and she called them curmudgeons. Like they they lost their they lost the ability to remember where they were heading, which is that we're here in the kingdom and we are on our way to ha- happily ever after, and that we should be rejoicing and that we should be full of happiness for that. But somewhere along the la- the way, we made discipline so important and keeping control of everything so important that we lost the ability to even be a happy person. Um, and she called that being a curmudgeon. That's good. I love that. Uh, last night, um, my wife and I were at parent-teacher conferences for my daughter, who's a freshman in high school, and the way her high school does this is you go into the big gym, and there's these huge lines of narrow tables, and behind the narrow tables sits all of the teachers with their name card in front of them, and if you want to go talk to one of them, you have to line up and wait for your five minutes with that teacher. And even though with both of our daughters, we've never had sort of concerns that would require us to go to this. We go every time anyway, because especially my wife loves to talk to each of my daughter's teachers and kind of get a a bead on how they're experiencing um, her in the class. And so we were there last night waiting to talk to a teacher, and Bev saw this couple just down the way from us who she had met at one of the cross-country meets my daughter's involved in. She saw this couple, and she said, "'Oh, oh, do you see that couple there?' They have a Japanese boy with them because they're the couple I told you about that um, have a Japanese exchange student living with them for a whole year. Remember I told you that they decided only a week before they got him that they were going to have a exchange student. So Bev spent the next 10 minutes telling me about her conversation with this couple and how they had had four kids of, of their own, and they were all but one of them was off in college, and they decided, you know, we have three empty rooms here, or, or two empty rooms here, and uh, why not 
offer the one of those to an exchange student who needs it. And so she was just blown away by how um, joyful they were, how they welcomed this Japanese boy into their home, how they've made him a part of their family, how they're generously giving him so many incredible experiences here in America. And there they were on the teacher night when you're supposed to go learn how your student's doing, and there they were, even though they've already marshaled three of their four kids through this process, there they were with their exchange student. So it just struck me as I was listening to her, because she was describing people that were incredibly generous, that were free and vulnerable with their love, that were joyful in the way they welcomed people into their home and shared their resources with them. And I felt convicted standing there. And in, in part, it's the conviction that I feel when I, when I think about this. So you work hard, you got, you got a pretty good dialed-in focus on what's true and what isn't true. You can debate with people if you needed to and, and probably win. But where's your love? Is it more important to be right or to be generous? Yeah. That, that's what struck me last night. Is it that, more important to be right or to be gracious, too? Yeah. And I look at this couple and I thought, you know, they're living the kingdom of God in the life of this Japanese exchange student, because they're sharing their life with him and and blessing him at a profound level. And you see this a lot with people that are just naturally gracious, generous, and hospitable. It, it is what they're doing less valuable than what a theologian does, who gets it all right. I think part of what Jesus is trying to say is, you don't just live out of your head, you live out of your heart, and the way that you engage and invite people and reach out to people and care for people, um, your, your intrinsic reactions to people in need, and are you generally with open arms or closed arms to that? And Jesus here is saying, hey, that's all good that you've figured out the right things and the wrong things, but I really want you to live with your arms open so that you're an extension of my care for people in the world. And if you get it all right in your head, but don't have your arms open in your life, yeah, I have a bone to pick with you. The second message was to the church at Smyrna, if I'm saying that right. And essentially what he's saying is, um, you know, I, I know about your suffering and your poverty. He's kind of in, intimating that I've kind of heard you complaining about your suffering and your poverty. But then he says, but you're actually quite rich. Um, you don't know it. You wouldn't know it from listening to you, but you're actually quite rich. You have me in the midst of all of that suffering and poverty, helping you through it. And so he's basically saying, you know, some bad people are going to oppose you, but I don't want you to be afraid to suffer through that, because I will be with you helping you. And I want you to have the courage to remain faithful even in the face of death, and I will help you with that. I will give you strength for that. So when he says you're, you're talking all the time about your struggle and your poverty, and you don't realize the resources I have to help you in the midst of that. Now, this is in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10. So what sticks out to you about that one, Becky? I think that it's... Again, I think you could think about individuals or you could think about whole churches, but there's definitely been times when I've encountered people in my life who, and I've even been through times like this where 
you're just struggling so hard just to get through, just to get by. And every day just feels so hard. And every time you come to the Lord, you're, you are coming to him for that. Um, but you don't realize that even though you don't have a lot financially, you have a lot to give other, other people anyways. And I definitely, when I was working in full-time ministry and going to college full-time, and living on my own and paying all of my own, you know, things, which is, you know, kind of uncommon um, for a 20-year-old these days. I was totally self-supported. And there were definitely months where it was just real hard to get by. And I was doing college ministry in a very um, affluent area where these college kids lived at home and their parents paid for everything. But I I constantly had these revelations where I would be in a small group or I would just be sitting with somebody who was going through such a hard time. And I was constantly reminded that even though I didn't feel like I had anything, that I actually was giving a lot um, to these students. And so sometimes we get so focused on our physical needs that we don't realize how much power is is in us um, and how much the Holy Spirit gives us more than than we actually need physically, not just for ourselves, but also to help other people spiritually. Yeah, that's good. I have this image of, you know, Jesus used this metaphor that he's a good shepherd, and he he knows how to help and guide and lead his sheep, and he, he tells this parable where he leaves the 99 that are safe on the hillside to go after the one that's gotten lost and stuck in the brambles, and if you think of, just think about that image, a, a, an alone sheep who's somehow found their way away from the herd and has gotten stuck in the brambles, and that certainly means that it's sooner or later a predator is going to find that lone sheep mm-hmm. stuck in the brambles, and, and, and that sheep's going to die. So think about how scary that would be if you're stuck and you can't get out and you, you're afraid of dying. And think about how your focus would just narrow down to, oh my, this is horrible what's happening to me. It's terrible. Not recognizing in that moment, because it's human not to, that you have a fierce shepherd who's coming after you, who's maybe standing right next to you, about to help you get out of the brambles. Um, but it's so much easier to—you can just hear in your head maybe that screaming bray of a sheep, you know? I've, I, I lived in Rome for a while, and, and there was sheep herds near where I lived, and I used to hear that every morning, this kind of really alarming cry, and that's the cry we make when we are suffering, when we're struggling through something. That makes me think of uh, a friend of mine in college. He had this really great analogy about if he his family is originally from China, and so he spent a lot of time there. If you remember the Chinese finger trap, do you remember that toy where you put both fingers on it, and when you try and pull your fingers out, you can't get your fingers oh, out. Yeah, Do you remember yeah. that yep. one? Uh-huh. It's And so you put your fingers into this like Chinese finger trap and you just keep trying to pull out and you can't get out. You can't get out. Um, but actually the way to get out of a Chinese fi- finger trap is you actually push in. And once you push in, you're able to easily get out. And he always used that analogy as when we're in hard times and we're going through struggles, our natural tendency is to just keep pulling, keep pulling out. I, I got to do it on my own strength. I got to keep pulling um, to complain and to do all of these things. But actually, if we want to get through it, we actually have to push in to Jesus, and then he naturally lets us out. That's really good. And, and on a practical level, what what is Jesus doing here? He's trying to say, in all ways, this is how we started out talking about the book of Revelation, in all ways, this is always about intimacy between you and me. And I'm 
always wanting you to push in, to lean into me. Thinking about, uh, I, I took a walk with my wife uh, last week. She had just found out that she had uh, gotten a, a mammogram back that showed a lump. And this has never happened before, but both of her sisters have had cancer. And all of a sudden, this this lump shows up on a mammogram. And so, of course, she and I went to this, oh my gosh, this can't be happening. And we had a week to wait for further testing to see what this was. And in between that waiting time, we call it the liminal space, the space between um, what you're leaving and going and then go- going into is this middle no man's land where it's the hardest place to be because you don't know what you're going to hear. And we were taking a walk one night, and she was... Uh, I, I felt just really strongly led at the start of our walk to say, instead of us going back over the things that could happen now, let's spend our entire walk talking about the just remembering the ways Jesus has come through for us and the many ways he has blessed us in our lives. Let's just spend the entire time and say it's off limits to talk about anything negative or negative consequences for the entire walk. And that's what we did for 40 minutes. Um, and you can see this strength coming back into Bev's eyes and the foundation coming back under her feet when you start to remember how good and true Jesus is and has been in your life. And unfortunately, because we're like sheep, we quickly forget all of the things he does. We forget how strong he is and how fierce he is on our behalf. And Jesus wants us to remember the nature of his heart. He doesn't want us to forget, especially when we're in the midst of suffering. So he wants us to remember he's near and he's going to help us in the midst of it. So the third the third message is to the church at Pergamum. And essentially what he's saying to them is, I know you're in the city where Satan has his throne. So that means like, that's a bad city. <laughs> There's some bad stuff happening if you live in the city where Satan has his throne. And even so, he says, you guys have refused to deny me. Even in the midst of the pressure of living in a city like that, you have you have stuck up for me. But here is my complaint. Um, you have continued to tolerate the false teachings of these people called the Nicolaitans. Um, and he, he said, so even so that you stood up for me, you've kind of made way for this kind of rotten, you know, really damaging, destructive teaching. You've kind of let it be. And, I, and it doesn't say why they've let it be. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, they've, they've kind of acquiesced in this, in this area and said, yeah, we're just going to let that go. But Jesus makes a point to say, you know, that's not okay. I, I don't like it that when my people put up with things that are not true and are really hurting people in their untruth. So what what uh, sticks out to you about that, Becky? So na- my natural tendency when I read this is to think about there's a lot of, there are there are some false teachings happening out in, in the Christian realm right now. Um, I'm not going to name names. That's not, not necessary. But you see it, and people are kind of, they're, they're changing the way that they read the Bible to accommodate what's going, um, what they what they want to believe in. Um, so it's our natural tendency to go there. But actually, when I read this, I I went a different place. We did a documentary a few years ago called "When God Left the Building." Our CEO went around and documented the decline of the church in America, 
and both positive and um, negative examples of what was happening out there. And one of the positive examples was a church in Pennsylvania, in Reading, Pennsylvania. This particular area of Reading, I, I actually went to Reading um, with the documentary. And so I got to visit and um, with this church and these people. It's a very crime and drug-ridden area. And it, there's a, just a ton of depression and what these this police officer who was part of this church, who's, you know, I'll, I'll explain how he's part of the story in a second, but he was undergoing this situation where his fellow policemen were committing suicide. There was like a high suicide rate and he was just wretchedly hurt. And he, he goes to a church that does a, a program that we do here called Life Tree Cafe. And they were hosting it at the church. And he just thought, my friends would never come here. They desperately need this, but they would never come here. And so he set forth to plant this Life Tree Cafe in a bar. Um, and the church that he went to had a policy against alcohol being at any kind of church-related function. And part of the reason for that is because some of the elders who had been part of sort of forming the church's rules they had been alcoholics themselves. And so they just really had an averse, they just didn't want, they didn't want anything to do with alcohol. It had almost destroyed their life. It was very painful for them. And so they just didn't want anyone to be drawn to that. And what is so magical about this story is that Nathan, just in a very peaceful and loving way, he worked and worked and worked to the point where the elder said, you know what? my pain and what I went through is not as important as reaching the people that you need to reach. And so they ended up giving permission and he still runs a life tree cafe in a bar. It's almost packed every single week. And he's, he's been able to supernaturally bring so many people to the Lord. His, his stories are amazing. But I think about that church and how, when we talk about false teachings, it can even be over making rules that are above and beyond what was set upon us um, yeah. and taking them too far to the point where we're, we're, we're not able, we're leading people astray or we're keeping people away. So actually, while my natural tendency when I read this is to go a different direction about people who are doing false teachings in a different way, I actually thought of this story as, a, as an example. That's good. I love that. And I'm going to do something here. I'm going to respond uh, also to the this whole false teaching thing, but I want to do that by going to the fourth message, because the, his message to the church at Thyatira is very similar to the previous message. So let's, let's take on this one. He, he, he says to Thyatira that he knows that they've persevered in love and faith and service, but again, they've allowed basically a liar who's teaching these so-called deeper truths to lead people astray and he's not happy about it. So it's it's a similar message that he had for the church in what did I say Pergamon? Yeah. Yeah. So it's two similar messages. So what I think about with this is the sort of the coagulation of what I might call a secular gospel. And it's probably best represented I uh, I think by uh, people like Oprah Winfrey for instance who advocates um faith as sort of a commodity. Just have faith in something. Yeah. It's good to be a person of faith. Just find faith in something, and your life will be better. And for me, that is a—it's a, a good-natured but almost diabolical twisting of what the gospel is. Faith in just something isn't helpful in the end, any more than me saying, um, 
I'm going to sit on this chair made out of paper mache. The most important thing is that I'm sitting. No, the most important thing is to choose a chair that can hold you up, <laughs> not a paper, not a paper mache chair. So, faith in what is what really matters, and faith in general in anything is sort of diabolical because it can lead people to think that all I need to do is just believe in something, and it misses the whole point. And it's heartbreaking from the perspective of Jesus because. He's not interested in faith as like a magical incantation in our life. Faith is what develops trust in our relationship with him, and it's the relationship he's after. So if we say faith in anything is okay, we're basically diverting people from the heart's desire of Jesus who wants a deep, intimate, loving relationship with us. So that's an example of, I think, some things that we've kind of told ourselves are okay to simply embrace and and have as part of our life. But the the truth is, if Jesus didn't say it or model it, and it's contrary to what he said and modeled, then it's not true. Kind of like Christians that I see now who are doing Buddhist meditation in the form of mindfulness, and they may not even know it because sometimes these things are called mindfulness and they're prescribed by doctors, but if you pay attention to what they're asking you to basically pray, I mean, it's like a time of prayer that you're declaring it's opposite of what Jesus asked us to do. It's more about self-focus and self-worship um, and idolizing ourself and idolizing success. Um, and we did a whole episode on that. You could go back and check that one out. But the mindfulness movement is definitely one that I see infiltrating my Christian influences and just becoming confusing. What is the difference between this and prayer? Yeah. And we don't want to get too caught up in the weeds of all the things that are out there that aren't so true, because there's so many of them. But the truth is, Jesus said an extraordinary thing that no one in the history of mankind has ever said before. He said, I'm not pointing you to the truth or the way to truth, or I'm not pointing you to life. I am truth. I am the way. I am the life. He's trying to say, connect and abide in me, because uh, I am the source of all these things, and if you abide in me, you will know the difference between truth and untruth. You'll know the difference between a way you should go and one you should not. You'll know the difference between life and death, because I'll help you understand it. Now, the fifth message was to the church in Sardis, and essentially what he's saying here—I just love this one—he he says, you protect this image of being alive on the outside, but you're actually dead on the inside. So wake up and remember what's important and true. He's saying you kind of slowly slid into this place where you sort of portray a certain kind of life and a certain kind of aliveness in your exterior, but you're actually dead inside, and you're covering over that. So he's saying, I want you to wake up, stop living a double life, and admit what is true on the inside. And we know that Jesus was uh, hammered the Pharisees, because of their focus on the outside of the cup instead of the inside of the cup. He, he was invited to this dinner, and he didn't ceremonially wash his hands when he entered to this uh, private dinner, and that upset some of the Pharisees there, and then that upset Jesus. He's like, you guys don't even care about what's on the inside of me. All you care about is whether I did the, this outward-focused ceremonial washing, and that's your big problem. All you care about is the outside of things. You don't care about the inside of things, and that's what I care about, is the inside of things, because the inside of the thing is what produces fruit on the outside of the thing. 
So you've got it all wrong, you Pharisees. And here in this message to the church at Sardis, he's pointing out the same kind of hypocrisy. So what sticks out to you about that one? You know, this is another example of a church that was in the documentary when God left the building, but and it's actually one of the main churches that it focused on. And I can't remember it was in Newark or I can't remember, but the church was just, it was just so, they were trying to project this image of like, we go to church every Sunday, we're always here and we're doing all the right things. But you just go into this church and it just is like ghost town. They spend all of their time discussing whether or not they can move a chair like 12 inches to the other direction or if they can take down a picture and put up a new one. All of the focus of the entire church is not on the community and what it can do to um, liven the community, support the community, but it's all based on these outward things about the church, like replacing the stained glass and making sure that the you know lobby doesn't get any clutter in it. And why is this book here? It's supposed to be in the library. And just all these really surface level things that the church spent so much time focusing on, meeting after meeting after meeting. And uh, part of the hopeful part of that story is one of the women in the group just decided to start a prayer group. And that grew into something more meaningful. They got together and they started supporting each other. And they mm. then, then they started moving out into their community. But in the beginning of that story, it was just like, oh my gosh, they mm. really have lost their way. Yeah. And I think uh, when, when, we treat, when we treat our life with Jesus as if he's sort of a vending machine for the tips and techniques that will help us in our life, sort of like a self-help tidbit vending machine which often we can slide into. We make Jesus functional. Like, uh, how can we turn what he just said into a functional principle that I can use in my life to make my life better? When we slide into this subtle sort of off-road journey, we end up having these meaningless conversations about things like what you're talking about, Becky. We've lost the focus of our passion for him because we've made uh, our relationship with him so functional. And so what can I get out of this in the end? We wouldn't call it that, but if you stand back and think about what is my relationship with him about really about, and if it's really about what can I get out of this for myself, how can I live a better life uh, by, by uh, living the Christian life, we've sort of subtly capitulated to this this kind of sidelight relationship that leads to these kinds of conversations. So Jesus is saying, wake up, remember what's important and true. Wake up. The only thing that matters is my relationship with you. That's what this whole deal is about, restoring trust. So let's do that. So we have two more messages to churches. The, the next to last one is to the church in Philadelphia, and this is the only one that kind of goes outside of this poetic structure of, I have a complaint against you, um, but here's what I like that you're doing. The, the whole thing is uh, just kind of inspiring. He says to that church, you're weak, but you obeyed me anyway. Way to go, you guys. You feel weak, but you obeyed me anyway, and because you've already persevered in this way, I'm going to protect you from future testing, because you've, you've already shown such great strength. I'm going to kind of allow you to skirt any future testing that comes your way. So so that's just a hurrah for the church in Philadelphia. And then the last one is to, a message to the church in Laodicea. 
and this one we probably heard a lot, of all these seven messages to churches, this is probably the one preached on the most in churches. Mm -hmm. And this one, he says, you know, I I know that you're neither hot or cold, and I wish you were one or the other, and because you're lukewarm, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. He's, he's saying, I don't like that. I don't like that you're kind of hedging your bets in the middle here, that you're neither hot or cold. And, and he also tells them, you tell yourself you're rich when you're actually poor. So this is the opposite of the previous one we were talking about. You're, you're saying, I, I, I'm pretty well off when you're actually poor, and you really need what I have, so I suggest you ask for it. And then, he, then his final word to that church is, look, I'm pursuing you here. I'm knocking on your door. Are you going to answer the door or not? So he's really trying to get at their complacency, their sense of, yeah, I'm not really uh, all in about anything. I'm just going to kind of hedge my bets and do what makes it work for me, but I'm not going to really jump in all the way. And Jesus is saying, look, I would rather you hate me than think kind of milk toast thoughts about me, <laughs> like Jesus is just a nice person. I would rather you have a passionate disagreement with me than just live a life that says, well, Jesus was a pretty nice person, and when I need him, I'll call on him. He really doesn't like that. He was a nice guy. Yeah. So so here he's saying, hey, I'm pursuing you, um, and uh, I'm knocking on your door. Are you going to answer the door, Church of Laodicea? Ooh, that one's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> Did, I mean, just just listening to it, 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 it there's no way that it doesn't go into your soul and just kind of, mm, you know, not, you know, we can get into this place so easily. Almost we like to be there. We like it to be just easy, right? Yeah. Not, not, nothing hard going on in our life. Just, I want to coast. I'm so tired. I'm just going to coast. And it's so easy to get here. And I think that this is such a great message for us today, for everyone today. What are we? Are we hot or are we cold? Or are we just lukewarm? Are we just, you know, lukewarm water? Nothing exciting about that. And the and the follow-up to that is, however you answer that question, is not, well, then I need to work up no. myself. It's, it's to, as Becky said before, lean into Jesus. Yeah. Lean back into him. Remember what he's like so that that first love, that experiential passion that we have for him is lit again in, in us. That's the way it happens. The same way it happens in your marriage relationship, when you've drifted apart. How do you come back together? You get to know each other again. That's how you do it. You don't say, well, I need to practice the discipline of having passion for my wife. <laughs> no, you get to know your wife again, and and you remember why you you loved her in the first place. And that's what leads back to this, you know, hot or cold response instead of the lukewarm response. So after these seven messages to the churches, I'm just going to sum up to you for you the rest of the book of Revelation. It is full of this crazy stuff, but essentially the rest of the book of Revelation is this hallucinatory vision of both the creation of the world, the arrival of the Messiah, and the outcome of the war between the Messiah and the betrayer, who is Satan. Uh, so the story is really a story of good conquering evil from that point forward. It's just told in this incredibly fantastical way. But again, the focal point for the rest of Revelation is, hey, here's what happens in the end. The Lamb overcomes the enemy. That's the message of this story. So to, clo to, to kind of close it off here, 
why are we so fascinated with this stuff in the first place? What? Why do we insist, even now, when we're thinking about the symbolism of the Revelation, in figuring out this stuff so that we'll know what's going to happen in the future? And Becky kind of hinted at this at the start. We do want control over our circumstances, and Revelation instead is pointing us to the glory and power and determination of Jesus. The, the book is really not about—its uh, value is not about foretelling the future. Its value is in showing us the centrality of Jesus and the glory of him overcoming evil in not just the world, but in our own hearts. He is going to win, and he's going to prepare a place for us to be with him in the slipstream of his victory. He is going to win this thing. <laughs> we already know who's going to win. So the supernatural, I think, is also— expressive of this greater reality that we live in. If you've ever kind of looked up in the sky and look at the stars, and then you start to hear things like, uh, I, I did some research for something recently and realized that the, in the observable universe, there is there are—I I don't even know how to say this number. It's a number with one and 24 zeros behind it. That's how many stars are observable for us, and there's we know there's many, many galaxies that are not observable. So we can't get our minds around this. We can't even fathom what reality really is and how far apart these things are and how they're, you know, they're able to see uh, these uh, collisions between stars that happened billions and billions of years ago because the light from them has finally reached our telescopes. And wow, like, we can't fathom this. It's, it's beyond our human brain capability to fathom this. And so it, we translate it into these fantastical symbols, and I think... That's what's been given to John in the book of Revelation, these fantastic images, him trying to describe the, the, what he's observing, um, or, what he, or the message he's being given to Jesus. So this is the beauty of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus has been given to us to simplify all this. God has said, all of my message, all of my truth has been planted in him. Just pay attention to Jesus. Don't try to get your mind around all the things that you can't possibly comprehend about who I am and my kingdom, or even the nature of reality. I've put it all in him. Just pay attention to him, and you'll, you'll get everything you need to get. So here's our challenge from now until the end of the year. Uh, and this comes from my friend Carl Medeiros, who in his story uh, toward intimacy with Jesus, he just decided, I'm only going to read from the Gospels for the next three years. And so he, that's the only part of the Bible he read for three years, because he wanted to get immerse himself in the presence of Jesus and, and those who followed him. And, and so uh, that's all he did for three years. How about if you decide to read only from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, from now to the end of the year, and see what kind of impact this has on your, uh, not just knowledge of Jesus, but your experience of his heart. Just see from now to the end of the year, it's three, th- you know, two and a half months, uh, just read in the Gospels and see what kind of impact that makes in your life, um, and, and see if it draws you in the same way the book of Revelation draws us to the person of Jesus in all of his glory. See what happens then. It's such an important thing to do also because it helps you to evaluate other parts of Scripture that you read. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus can't contradict the Bible, and the Bible can't contradict Jesus. And so 
Jesus constantly was telling us not to worry. He was constantly saying, please don't worry, please don't worry, please don't worry. And so he didn't give us the book of Revelations to make us worry. And that's the thing that we have a tendency to do. We tend to go into the book of Revelations, and then we tend to look outwardly at our world, and we tend to become consumed and with worry about what is, is it coming? Is it coming now? Am I ready? And that is not the intention of Jesus at any moment in our lives. So this, we wanted to do this episode to set you free from that. If, mm-hmm. if, if you've been seeing the earthquakes and the fires and having, you know, concerns about our political um, arrangements and, and uh, you know, threat of war and famine in different countries, if all of this is consuming you and it's, it's causing you to just hyper-focus on, is this it? Is, is this the end? Am I ready? I just want to say... Be free of that. Be free of that because he didn't want you to worry. Um, and he would never call you into to a situation where he was asking you to worry. So relax. And if you decide to read Revelations, I would encourage you to do it like Rick did. Imagine Jesus as being playful and joking about this. It's a different kind of read when you look at it that way, that he's being playful, that he's like, ha, ha, ha. Um, all of this stuff is always happening at, at every time. So that's when the end is. He's trying to tell us and not tell us at the same time. Also, if you haven't joined our pigs group, um, we are called the pigs because we're all in for Jesus. It comes from chapter five of Rick Lawrence's book, The Jesus-Centered Life, Living a Pig Life. If you haven't read that, I highly encourage you to. Um, and you can join that group from a link in your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Also remember that you can find out more information about things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com. Find our podcast section. This is season two, episode 42. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. See ya. Bye.